0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 39, Life as an REI. In this episode, learn all about reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Hear about the path I took to get to this job and what I do on a day-to-day basis. life as an REI. This is my job and I totally love it. Even though when I was younger and I was a pre-med and I knew I wanted to be a physician, I had no idea that this job really existed. So that just goes to show you that you do not have to have your whole life planned out from the beginning. Do you hear me? Because I thought that I had to have my whole life planned out. I am a type A planner and I love it. Nothing wrong with planning However, you have to understand that life changes. You are going to change. You have to evolve. And that's all good, good stuff. It's funny how our job is a central portion of who we are. When most people introduce me, they say, oh, this is Natalie Crawford. She's a fertility physician. Oh, and then we talk about my work. And then we talk about being a mom or that my husband grew up in Austin and everybody on earth knows him because he's the most social person but your job is usually one of the key pieces of your identity. So I'm an REI, Reproductive Endocrinologist and Infertility Physician. That is a three-year fellowship path after a four-year OBGYN residency. Those of you who've been around for a while know that I made the path even longer by doing a year of emergency medicine first. So what does this mean? I went to four years of undergrad, I went to Auburn University, War Eagle, and I majored in nutrition science. So I've had a high interest in nutrition from the very, very beginning. I've always found it hard to study, but very fascinating that the food we put in our body has to make a difference to how our organs function. That's always fascinated me. I always wanted to be a doctor. That was a no question game. I loved science. I loved the human body. I wanted to help people. My parents are not physicians, but my grandfather was. He was a psychiatrist, and he loved his job. And I always wanted to be able to have a job that I loved that much and where I could make such an impact on someone's life like he was doing. So I went to college knowing med school was my next step. And I was one of those people that had no plan B, not because plan B's are bad, but I wanted plan A. And I kind of was under the assumption, if I can't get plan A, I'll figure it out then. But I'm going to go all in on plan A. Everything's going to go to plan A. And I'll look at plan B later if I have to. So I was pre-med from the beginning. I chose to major in nutrition because I liked it. And I went along the pathway. I went to Auburn largely because, one, they gave me a scholarship. So that was good. And two, my very best friend on earth, Chrisley, who exists nowhere on social media and thinks that my whole Instagram success is just a big lie, but she was always going to go to Auburn. She lived across the street from me, 32 steps from my house, and she ended up marrying one of Jason's best friends too. So anyways, we've been connected from the beginning, best friends since about seventh grade and on. But she was always going to go to there. Everybody in her family went there. There was no question. It was a state school in Alabama. I didn't really think it was that great academically. I just went to check it out because I got that scholarship and I loved it. I say all of this because college is what you make of it. So if you happen to be at the younger stage listening to this, I don't care where you go to college. You go to college in the place that's going to be the best for you, where you can get good grades, where you can study, where you can be involved where you will be inspired. That's the place that's right for you. Maybe it's in your hometown. Maybe it's really far away. Maybe you have a free ride. Maybe you're taking out the biggest loans on earth. What is the place that is going to set the foundation for you to be able to accomplish the things you want to? Okay, so I went to Auburn and I got into medical school and I went to UTMB, which is the University of Texas Medical Branch, It was the original medical school in the state of Texas, down in Galveston, on the island, and I applied mostly to Texas schools. They had a match system, it was kinda crazy, it probably still is, I'm so removed. But anyways, my parents were living in Texas at that time, they were both from Texas, that's in-state tuition for med school, and I wanted to come back and be closer to home. I also happened to be dating a boy who was in pharmacy school in Austin, Texas, named Jason, and I thought it'd be a good idea to not be long distance anymore. So Texas was high on my list. I loved UTMB. They had a progressive curriculum for the time. It a lot of problem-based learning. So things were more combined together with organ system-based learning instead of your traditional medical curriculum. And that really intrigued me and inspired me. I would have gone anywhere. I wanted to go to medical school. That's the end of the story. And when I got in, I was just floored and super happy. So four years of medical school, they were not the best years of my life. I mean, some of them were really great, But my first year of medical school, my cousin was in a house fire. He was my age. We were one month apart, and he lived in Houston, and he actually got flown down to Galveston January of my first year because there was a really great burn center in Galveston. So, His name was Lee, and he came down there, and that moment really changed medicine for me dramatically. He had third-degree burns on about 80% of his body. He was in the burn ICU, underwent over teens of surgeries, I can't even count, and my aunt and uncle came down and lived with me for a little while in my apartment before they got their own. And I would go up to the burn unit every day after class and study in the burn ICU waiting room, And then I'd go see him and talk to him. And I didn't really know human suffering before that. I really didn't. I knew it existed. I knew death existed. But I had not intimately been involved in watching somebody fight for their life and cry in pain through so many painkillers and really, really fight. And it was eye-opening to see how the whole medical team interacted with him. And I remember getting the call after one of my neuro exams that he went into heart failure while on the table and we needed to come. Of course, that's actually not what we were told. We were told, you need to come right now. So I get a distraught call from my cousin, his older sister, Lauren, saying, come now to the hospital. No idea what's going on. So I go and I find my aunt and uncle and they don't know what's going on. Lee was in a surgery, a minor surgery for hand contractions. So when your skin is healing from being burned, the skin loses its elasticity and you lose mobility. So they went in to go fix this so he could have some function from his hands. To understand, we thought he wouldn't survive 48 hours after his burns and we were three months later. He had been standing up working with PT, he was communicating, and his heart apparently stopped while he was on the table. He went into fluid overload and went into heart failure and we didn't know what was going on. I remember standing in the lobby with my aunt and watching as they were rolling him. They resuscitated him. They got his heart back, but he'd been without oxygen for a substantial period of time to his brain. And I remember seeing him wheeled by and standing next to my aunt. We'd just gone to get coffee while we were waiting You could tell. I mean, he was gray. You could tell he was not there anymore. And I remember the moment where she dropped her coffee and fell into my arms. And we knew. However, we went to the family waiting room and waited for about an hour for somebody to come and tell us what had happened. And I remember that his doctor couldn't even look us in the eyes. And I I know he was a good doctor and he's a great surgeon. I knew his reputation. Nothing bad to be said from him. But I still remember... Wanting to hear the words that he was dead or that he wasn't going to make it. Instead, he just skirted around the issue because it was tough to talk about. And I knew from that moment forward, being on that side, when I had to give the bad news, I was going to give bad news. And I was going to look somebody in the eye and tell them something they did not want to hear without any hesitation. That is what I wanted as a patient's family member. And I felt like that was what I was going to be if I was going to be a physician. I watched my aunt, and uncle make the decision to take him off life support. I watched Lee take his last breaths, and I then spent the next six plus months doubting if I wanted to be in medicine. It just felt like it was too unpredictable. You could have somebody recover from a life-threatening injury, be walking, and die the next day. And I understand that that is life but it hit me real, real hard as a first-year med student. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, It's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So, whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click Get Started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. So I spent some time not knowing really what was the right thing for me, if I should stay in medicine or do something else. And remember, I had no plan B. But I had a couple good friends who were super supportive, and I just kept going. I did not get the best grades on earth. I did not do that great my second year. I did very average on step one, which is a huge exam we take. And I was kind of in survival mode. It's not at all how you want to be in med school, this culmination of everything you've worked for. I got the opportunity to go to Austin for my third and fourth year. It was a new program UTMB had where you could go up there for your clinical months. This was before a med school existed in Austin. And so 20 of us went up there for the whole year and stayed for our fourth year. And it was where I re-fell in love with medicine again, stepping onto the clinical wards, seeing patients, taking care of them. I fell back in love with the field overall. And as you know, I liked everything. I had a very hard time deciding what to go into. I really loved everything. I liked being involved with people. I knew I wanted to take care of people. And I really liked the diagnostic challenge and the brain work that came with some of medicine. So I matched into emergency medicine largely because of fear of not being able to have a family. I wanted to have a family. I didn't want to pick a field that would be too demanding like OBGYN or surgery. And isn't that funny now? But I also didn't have any mentors. I had nobody really saying, hey, Nat, pick what you love and you'll make it work. I heard the opposite over and over again. Pick something lifestyle friendly. Pick a lifestyle field. Pick something where you can do shift work or have a family. If you want kids, you can't be the one working all the time. I heard the negative message all the time. But I matched into ER, went into emergency medicine, started it at a great, great program at Parkland. It was not for me. So very quickly, I knew that I was not being satisfied with this career choice. And if you've heard the Girl Quit Your Job episode, you know the backstory of this. But it became evident to me that I was not being true to myself about what I needed. And I was listening to all the other noise that everybody else was telling me. And I was letting their opinions way more than my own. I was denying the truth because I was, I don't know, a pleaser, afraid, thought they were right, cared about what they thought, any of those things. Suddenly I got to the point where I really was unhappy with this and I knew if I kept on, I'm a good worker bee, I could graduate from my ER residency and work a few shifts a month, and that I'd leave medicine. That would not be enough to sustain me. It was hard and taxing, and I took my work home, and if you take your work home from the ER, it drains on you, because you never know what happened. I had a really great program director, and his name was Mike Wayne Scott, and he's passed away, but I went to him and said, this isn't right for me, and he said, you're one of our best residents, you have to stay, and I said, I can't, this is not right and really one of the kindest men I'd ever met. And he said, well, this is your one life. Let's make it work for you. What do you like? What do you want to do? He changed my whole schedule. And as you've heard me say, he asked me if I would stay the year. And I said yes, because I didn't want my co-residents to pick up other shifts. And he guaranteed me that he would help me find a position that was right for me. And he did. He was great. I really loved OBGYN, even as a medical student. I loved it again when I was an intern. It was the culmination of what I wanted out of medicine, to be with somebody in a vulnerable spot and be able to share in that uncertainty with them and help see them through that problem. I loved it from the get-go. So I decided to change over into OBGYN, finished out my year and started all over. So A gap year would be way more fun than doing two intern years, but that's what I did because I didn't want to be behind the game. I thought from the beginning, so OB-GYN is four years, and guys, it is hard. It's not hard in a bad way, you'll make it through, but it's hard. Anytime that there's a lot at stake, like someone's life or a baby's life, the pressure is high, the need to learn and to be perfect is very high. That's a tough training environment, but not at all impossible. One thing I liked from OBGYN was that I could take care of somebody throughout a whole problem, and there were so many fellowship options afterward. So that's one thing I really didn't like in the ER was that the job calls for you being the expert at just a little bit of a lot of information. You're actually not the expert at anything but managing emergencies, But for so many patients, you are calling on and asking for help from the experts, which is totally understandable and needed. You can't be the expert at all these different things. But I found myself wanting to be the expert, wanting to not have to ask for that help, if that makes sense. I wanted to be the person that you went to, who knew everything there was to know about a small and narrow topic. So identifying that in myself, once I was really honest that ER was wrong, and I did a lot of investigation into, well, what's really right, led me down the path of thinking, hey, a fellowship may be very attractive for me. Because there's generalists, which generalists are regular OBGYNs who you go see, they do so much stuff. They do annual visits, pap smears, they talk about contraception, they manage pregnancy, deliver babies, do surgery. But they also refer out to us, like me, subspecialists for certain needs that they have. But you complete your four years of OBGYN. I did mine at Parkland, loved it. It was super tough. And then I went on and matched to REI at University of North Carolina at UNC, which is a fabulous, fabulous program. Now, the specialties that exist, so the fellowship options after OBGYN, there's a lot to choose from. There's MFM or maternal fetal medicine, that's high risk OB. There's genetics combined with MFM. There is REI, like I do. There's GYN oncology, so cancers of the reproductive tract, like the cervix, uterus, vagina, ovaries, fallopian tubes. There is urogynecology. So problems that include the urinary system and the pelvic organs, such as prolapse or their structure, there's also minimally invasive surgery, there's family planning, there's global health, there's probably way more that I'm not even covering. That being said, there's a lot of options for what you can go and find your special interest in. And I was really drawn to REI from the beginning, but I didn't know if I could match into it. I was really afraid. I was super nervous to go and say, I want to match into this really competitive fellowship with my really average step one score and all these random things. But I decided to seek out mentors because I knew that's where I went wrong in med school. And I had a lovely, lovely mentor. Her name was Lisa Halverson and she's like a pituitary expert. She had a basic science lab. She now works at the NIH. Freaking fabulous woman. And I went to her, and she said, come be in my lab. Guys, I'm not a lab person. I have no idea. I was so uninterested in the lab side of science, pipetting, dilutions, no. But I looked at her and said, yes, of course I'll do that. So I was in her lab for over two years in residency. I did not have research time. That's not how we rolled at Parkland. So I would go before or after shifts, spend time pipetting, cry when my cells died, and I put in the hours. And it was the single thing that probably made the biggest difference on my application for fellowship because that length of time in the lab showed how committed I was to the field. And a letter from somebody as respected as Lisa. it carried a lot of weight. So I was really fortunate, and I had a lot of fellowship interviews. Really got to evaluate programs for what I thought would be the best fit for me. And UNC was a very autonomous program, and I really liked their faculty, and it felt like a good fit for us. So that's where I went. And those of you not in medicine probably don't know that everything's a match, so it's all crazy. You match into residency. You have to match into fellowship. This means you have to go on a bajillion interviews, put your best face forward, tell everybody the same spiel, you know, your real story, you want to fit in, but it's exhausting and so expensive. Then you rank programs, put them into a computer list, wait until one day where you find out your fate. It's insanity, to be honest. But so I think I went on 18 fellowship interviews, which is a ton. There's only about 40 programs in the country. So I went to a large number of them, which let me meet a lot of great people in the field. And that was a huge blessing because it has changed my career to have some of these big name people remember me from an interview. I'll just leave it there. Every impression you make is an impression. So I tell people that all the time. Go on all the interviews. Go meet all the people that you can. See what is out there and what fits you the best because otherwise, how do you know that that program is not in fact right for you? And what if that person remembers you three or four years and gives you a job or introduces you to somebody? The field is small the more specialized you get. REI Fellowship is super fascinating. So it's three years long. Half of it has to be research. So you have to have a substantial research project called a thesis that is written and defended when you sit for your boards. You also do half the time clinical. So the clinical stuff is a combination of infertility, the I, and reproductive endocrinology, the RE. And that can vary based on where you train. Is there a private practice? How high is their volume? How do you see endocrine patients? How do you see the PD endocrine stuff? How much surgery do you do? Do you do a lot of surgery or does the minimally invasive program do surgery? Every fellowship is so, so super different. It is fascinating that we are all getting trained differently all over the country. But then we become board certified. So I'm board certified in both OBGYN and REI. And what that means is that you have to take a written exam at the end of your training. So I took one written exam in general OBGYN at the end of my residency and a written exam at the end of my fellowship in REI. And it also means you take an oral exam after you submit cases that you've collected for a year. So I sat for my general OBGYN oral boards in December of my second year. So I had a baby, she was like six months old. I was still breastfeeding and pumping. ABOG had no pump rooms at the time. They've changed it luckily. But I remember contacting them being like, what do I do about pumping? And their answer was, let's wait till after the test is over because we can't accommodate you. Blows my mind, guys, right? AboG, the American board of OBGYN who promotes breastfeeding as the best nutrition for your baby can't accommodate their own. I'm not going to harp on it more because it outraged me at the time. But in fact, when I went and sat for my REI oral boards, there were pumping rooms and they did accommodate people who needed it. So at least they got their act together. I sat for my REI orals in April of my second year out of practice. So you have to collect cases for a whole calendar year submit them. You have to submit your thesis. The oral board process is insanity. So for REI, we sit through a session that's defending our infertility cases, a session defending our RE cases, and a session defending our thesis. There's all these other rules, like you can only sit for the board so many times if you don't fail it. And I remember talking about my boards on social media. So on my Instagram account, I was already at 30,000 followers when I was sitting for my REI orals and people were giving me a hard time about sharing that I was taking the exam. Specifically, well, what if you fail, then everybody's going to know. And I was a practicing doctor. I felt confident in myself, but it was a huge part of my life and I decided I was going to share it. And if I failed, I was going to share that too. Because here's the deal. It's a part of medical training, and I wanted to give a fair and accurate assessment to what we go through. I also think it's so important for people, for consumers who are looking for a fertility doctor to understand who they're seeing. Yes, an OBGYN has had some fertility training. They got, at Parkland, we got two months. Two months out of four years, did we go and do anything in fertility related? And very little of it was actually infertility. A lot of it was surgery or endocrine. Now, some OBGYN residency programs have a much better assessment of infertility. Their residents learn a lot. They spend more time. Everywhere is different. But when you go to an OBGYN and you're letting them do fertility stuff, you need to have good perspective on how much time you're spending there and how qualified they are for that job. So I think that really varies practice-to-practice practice and person-to-person. Person. So if you're a patient, it's completely appropriate for your OBGYN to do an infertility evaluation. Yes, 100%. It is also very appropriate for them to help you ovulate if you're not ovulating. Very appropriate. It's also appropriate for them to consider doing IUIs for a patient who have, need donor sperm or have a mild male abnormality or problems with intercourse. However, if you've been trying to get pregnant for a long time, for over a year, and all your testing is normal, I don't care how old you are, your chance of getting pregnant per month is less than 5%. And you probably need an expert to talk you through the options. That way you're educated and you can make the choice that's right for you. Also, if you're going to a fertility specialist, anybody can call themselves a fertility specialist. I am so for real. If you look online, you will find so many people who specialize in fertility who are not double board certified in OBGYN and REI. I did seven years training to do my job. I sat for four exams leading me to where I am right now, and I do CME or continuing medical education every year so I can stay board certified. The training process is rigorous. I delayed my own family starting. I had my kids and took minimal maternity leave so I could meet the board guidelines. I am the expert, guys, me, my colleagues, us. But a fertility specialist could be a nurse who likes fertility. It could be an acupuncturist who likes fertility. It could be a naturopath who likes fertility. It could be a chiropractor who likes fertility. It could be a psychologist who likes fertility. It could be a physician assistant who likes fertility. It can be somebody who just likes fertility, who was a patient themselves and now considers themselves an expert. There's no formal certification of fertility specialist. So if somebody's calling themselves a fertility specialist, who are they really? You deserve to know that. Same thing as women's health expert, hormone expert. What on earth does that mean? I'll tell you this. I'm not calling myself a hormone specialist because I'm a dang REI. I'm calling myself a physician who's double board certified in OBGYN and REI. You're getting me on a little bit of ramp because I think it's important to know that medicine is so complicated for a consumer and there's right things and wrong things to do. And a lot of people are selling you something If you're going to someone who's selling you a lot of their own supplements, you gotta be really careful about why you're spending so much money in their office. And is that really what you need? I know that sometimes you don't wanna hear the bad news. And I know that sometimes there are providers who don't wanna tell you the bad news. But here's the thing you deserve somebody who's gonna look you in the eye and tell you the truth, give you real numbers. Real options, real possibilities, even if you don't like them, even if it's hard to hear. Because I promise you from being on the other side, it's better than having somebody skate around the issue and not just get to the point. You deserve to be educated. Make sure you know who you are entrusting your care to. This is your one life. This is your one chance to have kids. Do it by being an educated consumer. So I did fellowship and then started looking for a job and we knew we wanted to come to Austin because my husband's from here and his parents were here and I really like drug Jason out of Austin kicking and screaming. So we ended up coming back here and I joined a practice and as you know, that practice wasn't the right fit for me but I was there for two and a half years and I learned a lot about both practicing medicine and myself and what I wanted and needed in a job. I quit my job with no plan, interviewed for a lot of different things, evaluated all my options, went to a lot of counseling, talked to Jason at nauseum about what was important to me, and ended up finding a spot that I really love, that really fits me well. And they are so supportive of all my other endeavors and understanding of what I'm trying to do, even though I'm pushing the boundaries into a sphere that's not really quite traditional. And what I'm going to say here is the best example I can tell you if you are a young woman in medicine, something that I say all the time as you're evaluating your career choices. Pick a field that you love and you're passionate about. You can work as much or as little as you want, but none of it will be worthwhile. If that's not something that's setting your soul on fire and sparking you, you'll walk away from the whole thing. Don't worry about Lifestyle fields or money or some of those factors at the beginning. Pick a field because you love that patient base, because you love that science. That's what you pick and you figure out the rest later. And my best example is the life of an REI can really, really vary. So the simplest example is at my last job, I would work m- Monday through Thursday. So my official schedule was Monday through Thursday and half day Friday. That's what I signed up for. And what that ended up being is that the IVF lab was in a surgery center, and the IVF procedures had to happen before the surgeries. The surgery center became a multi specialty surgery center. So I was doing egg retrievals at five in the morning. It meant there were a lot of patients that came through, and I was in clinic every day till at least six. My Friday half day, I was never out of there before three. And when we worked on the weekend, it was at least a Saturday, and I'd be there until two or three in the afternoon on a good day. And that's what I did over and over again. I missed dinners, I missed every morning, I missed ballet, I missed so many things. And it really started to bear down on me. I also was always running late and felt like I was constantly apologizing or, you know, not saying I'm sorry, but saying, Thanks so much for your patience. But who wants to wait that long in the doctor's office, especially when it's something that you're coming so frequently for? The truth is that model wasn't working for me. It wasn't working to be a mom of young children. It wasn't working to be somebody who had other interests that I wanted to give time to. I had no time to work out, let alone do a podcast. I was just spent And I kept trying to figure out how to make it work for me. And maybe I'll change this or try to negotiate this. And at the end of the day, it just wasn't the right place for me. And you can't make the wrong thing right, no matter how hard you try for it. Sometimes you just have to leave and figure out what it is that you really need and how do you go get it. So when I negotiated my new job, I was so clear, very transparent. These are the three things I need. I need this schedule, this money, this much freedom with my intellectual property. And I was clear about it from the beginning and they were really receptive to it. I got an answer that said, okay, let's make that work. And that was very, very empowering. So my job now is I see patients Tuesday through Friday and I start at seven, which is a good time for me. I'm a morning person and I still see Campbell before she goes off to kindergarten and help her do her hair or pick out her outfit And I have my last patient at 3, and then I usually chart for about an hour and clean everything up. And then I'm home to help with or more likely play with the kids while Jason cooks dinner. And I don't work any Mondays. And my weekends, I'm on call 1 out of 3, and we go in for procedures, ultrasounds, only as needed. So there's no, like, scheduled clinic. We're not there until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. When I go in, it's just because I have a patient who's doing an IUI or IVF and they need to be seen. There was no other choice, which happens in our field. That's very normal. My point is, there's one job called REI, and there's two very different work schedules I just gave you. You can make your job whatever it is, no matter the field that it is. I had, You have to give up things. I don't operate very much now. That's one of the things that transitioned from my old job to this one. And at the end of the day, that's okay with me because the most valuable time I have with patients are those one-on-one patient interactions in the room where I'm getting to know them and counseling them and helping them get to that next stage. So your desires change as you evolve, and sometimes you have to figure out what's the right compromise of everything that you need. Some REIs operate a ton, so the surgical component of what an REI can do Hysteroscopic surgery, I still do that. So that's surgery inside the uterus with a camera. So you can take care of adhesions, septums, polyps, fibroids. I do all those things. You can also do laparoscopic surgery like endometriosis, taking out tubes. You can do open surgeries, taking out fibroids. I used to do a lot of those and now I do none and that's okay. The truth is every REI's day is a little bit different. My current schedule is of those four days I work, Two of them, so Tuesday and Friday, I am the IVF doctor of the morning, and I love this schedule, and I really think that our patients do too once they get in the groove of things. So what does this mean? Is that Tuesday and Friday, I don't see any set patient appointments in the morning. I see monitoring patients for IVF between 7 to 8.30. I do embryo transfers between 8.30 and 9.15. I do egg retrievals between 9.30 and 11.00. I'll do an in-office surgery case around 11 if I have one. I'll sign off all the labs over lunch, and then I have an afternoon clinic starting at 1. It is awesome. It kind of breaks up the days. It gives nice little procedure breaks. I like procedures. They're fun. It's a nice way to meet other patients who are in cycle and meet your partner's patients and know the people who are going through the practice. And I love the team-based approach. So three brains are better than one. So I love the idea that we're coming together to look at these cycles together for patients who are in IVF. That makes it really collaborative and fun. So even though my patient may not see me on Wednesday because that's not my day, she's going to see one of my partners and then we're going to be able to talk about her case. So it's really nice to get other people's insights and perspectives into your patients as well. So I love this approach and I think patients really resonate with it as well. Now, most of my patient visits new patients, clinics. So there's hour-long new patient visits. There are 30-minute follow-up visits. And there's little 15-minute procedures. So procedures include IUIs, intrauterine insemination, SIS, is so saline and busonograms, HSG, hysterosalpingograms. And then there's your new patient visits and your follow-up consults. On Wednesday and Thursday, I see patients all morning. My typical schedule is seven, eight, nine, ten, four 10, four new patients in a row. And then I have some other things, and then some patients in the afternoon. That's my basic schedule and I adore it. So it's really great. I think it gives me a good blend of clinic time and procedure time. I like the team-based approach. And I still get a little taste of my favorite type of surgery, which is hysteroscopy. Now, there's a lot of other things that I do as well. So marketing is huge. If you're a subspecialist, you need to be accessible to the generalists in your community. So I'm a big believer that nobody's going to send to you if they don't know your face and they don't know if you're normal and smart. So that means you have to go meet them. That means we often will take lunch to different practices, be able to have face-to-face time with OBGYNs, answer any questions they have help them counsel how they're taking care of infertility patients at those beginning stages, make sure that they're feeling comfortable in their zone. They also always are teaching me things and they're fun. These are my friends. Medicine's not supposed to be so isolating. You're supposed to have friends in your community. Think about how medicine used to be. You would know everybody. And now we all do our own little things and you don't even have other people. So I love that idea. I love going in marketing and being able to talk to my friends who are obese in town and be able to provide good care for their patients. I love getting their patients pregnant and sending them back to them. It is so rewarding to kind of follow that through and get so excited when one of our mutual patients is able to have a successful outcome. And then I also do lots of other things. So I have this podcast, I have an Instagram, I have a blog, I'm planning women's conferences, because those things matter to me. Certainly, that's not what every REI does, but every person who's in medicine probably should, if they don't, have other outside interests and hobbies. And I am hopeful that they're able to find a career that supports all of those things as well. Here's the thing. No matter what you do with your life, I think it's really important to know that this is your chance. It's never too late to switch gears. It's never too late to start being honest to you It's never too late to walk away from something that's not right for you. It's never too late to find something that makes you passionate and go all in on that. It is not too late. I hate that answer. I hate it's too late. I'm too old. I don't have time. I can't do it. Yes, you can. So the point of this episode was just to give you an idea of what it took to become an REI and what life is like in this world. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, I want to thank you so much for your support of the As A Woman podcast. I appreciate every rating, review, and share. I know I don't always reshare them all on Instagram, but they mean the world to me. I just want to say thank you so much. And you can follow me along on Instagram at natalie md or check out the blog NatalieCrawfordMD.com.